Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Hope everyone is having a wonderful day. Today I'm talking to Matt Walsh and I am still like I, I just filmed the interview. So I film the interview and then I come back and I do the introduction and I'm still like trying not to laugh because the end of the interview just really made me laugh. And I know you guys are going to enjoy it. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about Governor Cuomo resigning, which happened. I am shook. I am shocked by that. I am shocked. And so Matt Walsh and I are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about Simone Biles, his take on that. Also, her saying on Instagram that she is pro-choice. We are going to talk about this trend of falsely accusing people of racism based on like these decontextualized clips and how terrible and toxic it is for society. We talk about some more philosophical, theological uh, things as well. We talk about this uh, kid, James Younger, who unfortunately his mom is pressuring him to um, be a girl. She was awarded full custody. So we're going to talk about a whole variety of things. And then the last subject is the one that made me laugh that I'm sure that you guys are going to um, enjoy. So Lots to cover, lots of thoughts from Matt Walsh. And without further ado, here he is. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. There's a few things I want to talk to you about today, but since this just happened, as we're recording this, Andrew Cuomo resigning, I just want to get your reaction to that. Saw you talking about it a few days ago on Twitter, but what's your reaction now that it's actually happened? Well, I, I guess the lesson for Andrew Cuomo is that you can kill thousands of elderly people and yeah. that'll be okay. But if you make uncomfortable comments to women, that's a bridge too far. I mean, that, that is the lesson here, because if he had not, if it wasn't for the sexual harassment scandal, that, that little detail about the mass slaughter that went on in uh, New York, <laughs> that would not have not that would not have brought him brought him down. He survived that. In fact, he thrived through that. And it's this, this is what takes him down. So I don't know exactly how to feel about that. I'm, I don't like Andrew Cuomo, obviously, like any other conservative. I, I don't like him. And, I'm, and I especially don't like him because of what he did in New York through COVID. But I don't know how this reflects on our culture that this is what brings a politician down and not the other thing. I know a lot of conservatives would say, well, who cares? He's going down one way or another. And uh, so I can understand that. I, I'm also worried about, because I'm always looking at the I'm always finding the dark cloud within the silver lining. That's my gig. So here's <laughs> another dark cloud, which is um, who who comes after him? Are we so sure that whoever replaces him? Right. I don't know anything about the lieutenant governor, but um, is she going to be better than than Andrew Cuomo in any in any way? I'm I'm not sure. I guess yeah. that remains to be seen. Well, I think that's what I was wondering. What's happened over the past few days that he decided that he was going to resign? There's got to be something going on behind the scenes because, like, what's the upside for him? Like you said, he survived and thrived through what I think was the biggest scandal of the past year and a half for him. And now he crumbles because a few people, and these are bad accusations. I'm not saying that they're not, but because a few people accuse him of sexual harassment, now he is stepping down really quickly. I mean... It just makes me think that there's something going on there, that there were reasons why people didn't want him to be in power. I don't know. It's kind of conspiratorial. It just seems a little fishy to me, don't you think? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. There's also the question of why Why did everyone everyone on the left turn on him? The, the media, right. um, his fellow Democrats, they turned on him quickly. I don't, I don't think we've ever, I'm not going to say ever, but it's, it's not often that we see something like this, a rise and fall this dramatic within a year, because yeah. within one year, I mean, a year ago, or at least a year and a half ago, he was being hailed as 
the hero of the pandemic. He was beloved, at least by people on the left. The media certainly loved him. He got an Emmy. He got a multi-million dollar book deal. Um, and then he's at the, the sort of his political heights and then he crashes down and they all turn on him. That's not, the media doesn't often do that. I mean, usually they're going to either ignore something like this or they'll circle their, their wagons around their guy. The Democrats generally do that. They don't often um, turn on their own like this, which does, which does get my own conspiratorial yeah. antenna up a little bit. And it might be something as simple as uh, he, he, they started to see him as a threat for 2024 and, right. and they don't think he should be the guy. They want maybe Kamala to be the person. And uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's what he did wrong ultimately yeah. to, to, uh, to earn this. I don't know. I thought about that, too. I was thinking about that a few months ago when it was heating up about what he did with the nursing homes. And then there was also kind of the beginning of talks of recall of Gavin Newsom, which is obviously going to happen. And it made me think, OK, were these 2024 contenders that the Democratic Party didn't want to get in the way of Kamala? Now, I don't know how true that is because Kamala is so unpopular. I'm like, surely they're not going to try to get her to run against Ron DeSantis. But I mean, who the heck knows? So I was thinking about that conspiracy, too. But I do hate that this kind of gives Democrats a way to say, look, we hold our people accountable. This is what we do. Whereas the Republicans don't care about integrity and their leaders at all. We really care about integrity. Um, I've seen people kind of have that reaction and it just makes me roll my eyes. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's one thing on, on the left is that first of all, they're all, they're always on offense. I think, I think the right can learn something from yeah. that. Um, n- nothing that happens can ever prove them wrong or ever give them a reason to apologize or to, or to say, oh, we, we got that one wrong because these are the people that were hailing him as a hero, identifying themselves as Cuomo sexuals. <laughs> and, um, and rather than saying, oh, we got an egg on our face on that one. That's embarrassing. They're saying, oh no, this proves how great we are. It's kind of like with the you know, the, the Olympic weightlifter, the guy who, uh, well, you, you know, <laughs> you, you yeah. know all about that Olympic Laurel. weightlifter. Yeah, exactly. And he, he flunks out of the Olympics and then the left, rather than saying, well, this was embarrassing. They say, oh, no, this, this proves our case. See, yeah. he didn't, he didn't, or, or rather she, they would say she didn't, uh, succeed. So that proves that there's no problem here. The, the right is making a big deal out of nothing. So they're always doing that. And they, they do that in this case. Um, but, but uh, of course I don't buy it at all. They're very selective about who they decide to hold accountable. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I guess the question of why, why was, why did Andrew Cuomo draw the short stick as far as that goes? I, I guess maybe we'll never know exactly. All right, taking a break to tell you guys about Good Ranchers. My husband and I love our Good Ranchers. They've got craft beef and better than organic chicken. You can get pre-marinated chicken. You can get not pre-marinated chicken, but you just go to goodranchers.com slash Allie and you pick out the different beef and the chicken that you want. They pack it in a box, all individually wrapped. They ship it to your front door. It's ready to grill or it's ready to put in a freezer makes your life so easy. It really is so convenient. And one of the things that I really love about it is that all of their meat is from American farms and the people at Good Ranchers have actually traveled the United States to meet with the people that are raising the livestock that they use for this really high quality meat. So they are guaranteeing the quality. They're guaranteeing that it's ethically raised. They're guaranteeing that you are getting the product um, that you that you want and that honestly, you're probably not going to find in the grocery store because 80% of the craft beef that you find in the grocery store is actually imported from overseas. So if you care about the quality of your meat, which you should, if you care about convenience and affordability, if you care about 
you know, supporting American farms, then Good Ranchers is a really, really good option for you. We love Good Ranchers in our house. If you go to GoodRanchers.com to place a one-time order, um, or uh, if you want to subscribe, then actually you get 20% off on uh, each box. Plus, if you go to my link, GoodRanchers.com slash Allie, or you use promo code Allie, you can get an additional $20 off in free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie for that additional $20 off in free express shipping. GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Speaking of um, holding accountable, I want to talk about a couple stories that have been circulating over the past couple weeks. Um, There is, as you've seen, a mob that likes to, quote, hold people accountable when they think that someone is being credibly accused of racism. So like, you know, the viral videos will come out without any context, without any proof whatsoever. The person is deemed some kind of white supremacist and their life is ruined. That happens to this woman named um, Amy Cooper. And I'm sure you've seen maybe over the past couple of days, she did an interview with Barry Weiss, where basically she gives some other details. And there are other people that corroborate the details that she she gave that shows that, okay, maybe she wasn't like completely unjustified in calling the police on this guy who seemed to be maybe implicitly threatening her dog. I'm sure most people remember this story. Um, And then there was this poor grandfather at the Rockies game. I think it was last night who was saying Dinger, which is the the name of the mascot, who was then accused of saying the N-word and it was investigated, you know, by the MLB and the Rockies. And they basically accused him of this thing that he did not do and never apologized for it. Um, I want to hear your take on this, like this trend of accusing people of racism when we just don't have any details and ruining their lives and no one saying sorry for it after. I think part of the the key here is that the the outrage mob they only care about getting the scalp. They don't they don't actually care. Yeah. This this each each person they go after. This is why they're so ruthless about it. And it's also why, by the way, the apologies never work. You know, you start groveling and apologizing. You shouldn't do that. Number one, because you should have more dignity and self respect. But also, it's not going to work. It won't matter because it's not really about you. It's it's almost like it's nothing personal. They're destroying your life because of what you represent to them. Which is, uh, you know, if if it's if it's a racial thing, then you're a representative of whiteness, and and especially a grandfather at the game with his with his grandkids with with his family, um, that's a representative of. He's an old older guy. He's white. He's male. So he's a representative of all those things, and those are all bad. They say, and so it doesn't matter if he actually said it or not, because what they would what they would say, and what they have been saying after it comes out that of course of course he didn't say the n word, and that, that's the other quick, yeah. a quick aside here. Let, let, let's just have a some kind of accurate understanding of human nature and what sorts of things people will actually do and not do. What are the, what are the chances that some guy sitting in the front row of a baseball game would just knowing he's on camera, just start shouting the N word at the top of his, at the top of his, uh, of his lungs for no reason. What what is he saying? I'm going to destroy, I know what I'm going to destroy my life right now at this baseball game just for the sake of it. Of course, of course he wasn't saying that. But, um, after that comes out and you see some, some, uh, people in the outrage mob, they're, their response is, well, he could have been saying it, and people do say these things, and so this is a problem, and whether or not he specifically actually said it doesn't matter because this is still a systemic problem and so on and so forth. And so they can continue, you know, 
throwing yeah. their stones. Well, when you when you watch the video, and I'll back up a little bit just in case some people didn't even know about this story. You watch this video of this grandfather, like you said, sitting there with, I guess, his wife and his grandkids trying to get the attention of the mascot to come over and take a picture, which I guess the, the name is Dinger. Someone caught it on camera. They showed it on social media. People thought that it was um, the N-word. But if you look at the context at all, like look at the people that are standing around him. No one is paying attention to what he's saying. Do you think if this guy was really yelling the N-word at a black player, everyone would just be sitting there and being like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's perfectly fine. Um, no, people would obviously be freaking out about that. There would have been some ruckus that was raised as he was as he was yelling that. But I mean, there are a lot of people, unfortunately, especially on the left, who really do think there are just like flagrant white supremacists walking around who do that kind of thing. They think that kind of thing is very common. And the statements that were put out by both the MLB and the Colorado Rockies basically say that. Like, I, the it was like, um, you know, justice and equality are just elusive in this day and age. And this is just indicative of, of where we are. It seems like these people live in a completely different reality than the rest of us. And it colors their judgment a lot. Yeah, they do. I mean, this and this is they 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 really do believe. Now, I think when we say they, we have to stipulate a little bit because the people in positions of power and influence in our culture, the the race hustlers that are perpetuating a lot of this stuff, I don't think they actually buy it. But uh, many of the average, you know, people on social media um, and elsewhere, they they that's what they believe about the country that they're living in. And they've been told this from a young age. I mean, kids now, critical race theory in schools and everything, they're, they're being indoctrinated into this belief system from a very young age. And they really do think that they live in a in a country where, you know, because as you point out, no, he's, he's shouting this. Nobody even reacts to it. And of course, you and I as rational people, we know that, number one, he's not going to start shouting that word. Even if he was the most flagrant racist in the world, yeah. he's not going to do that right then and there in that context and just, you know, jump on a grenade and destroy his life for the sake of it. But also no one else is reacting like they would. But I think people who are delusional look at that and they say, well, you know, this is so common that they, the other people there were probably also racist and it was the most normal thing in the world for them to be. They're probably at their barbecues at their houses and just shouting the N-word recreationally. It's just what they do. So, of course, they're not going to react to it. Um, it's it's completely diluted. But that is the yeah. version of the world that they live in. It's just a, and it, it's it's sad in some ways. You know, yeah. I, I feel super sad. the worst for the targets of the outrage mob, but I also do in some ways feel a little sorry for some of the people in that mob, that they live such a miserable and fear-driven life that this is the kind of world they think they live in. There was another video that went viral. I don't know if you saw it the other day where from one angle, it looked like this police officer who had pulled over uh, these two guys. I think both of them were black. It looked like from the perspective of the driver that was taking the video that the police officer had put like um, had planted a bag of drugs uh, in the car and everyone was freaking out. Rex Chapman, which is he's one of the biggest peddlers of misinformation on Twitter. He said, you know, this is systemic racism. It turns out you see from the body cam from the police officer that that's not what happened at all. He had found like the top of a baggie in in the pocket of another guy that they were, you know, checking out and he just kind of put it down to do whatever he was doing. Um, but I mean, this guy, he was probably doxxed and 
He could have gotten in trouble. He could have gotten threatened. His life could have been ruined if this grandfather had been identified. Uh, Amy Cooper's life was certainly ruined by all of this. Um, And those that perpetuate the narrative, whether or not it's true, they really don't care. They really don't care. Like, where do you think that callousness comes from? Because they're not losing a wink of sleep at night, the people that piled on this grandfather or any of these other people, now that they have been proven wrong. It just doesn't seem like they have compassion towards the people they falsely accused at all not uh, not at all but you see the 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 real power of when when you can be callous and cruel and you can be part of the pitchfork mob and you can go and randomly tear people to shreds and throw stones at them but also feel morally justified in doing it feel, feel like you're you know this is this is part of some greater good where you're given moral license uh that's when it becomes very dangerous and so i think everyone in in the mob that's how they feel. They feel like they're, they, they, they think, they believe, they've told themselves, convinced themselves at least, that they're struggling against some, some greater evil. So it, go, it goes back to, for them, the actual details of this case don't matter that much. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to police officers. So they see that and, and it doesn't matter. Did he actually plant the drugs? Who cares as far as they're concerned? This kind of thing happens, they would say. They would say it happens all the time. And so this is our way of calling attention to it. And this Police officer, if he didn't plant drugs that time, he probably has done it before, and he's definitely a racist, and um, and that's that's all we need to know. They're not going to apply any common sense you, because you have to, you know, in order to not fall victim to that, um, I think you have to have some kind of moral bearing of, uh, and, and also you have to have common sense. You have to understand the way the world works, um, yeah. and that's often enough for me. Anytime we see these. You know, very often when we see these kinds of out of context police videos and usually there's a shooting or something and the, the, you hear the claim, oh, a cop just walked up and shot someone dead. And before I, I even look at the video, I always say, well, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that didn't happen before I even see the video because that's not the way the world works usually. It could have happened. I'll watch it, but probably not. Um, but for them, you know, their their prior assumption is that this stuff happens all the time. And so. That's probably what happened here. Yeah. And just to note, just for people listening on the Amy Cooper thing, I don't know exactly. Uh, All I'm saying about the Amy Cooper thing is not that she was necessarily in the right, because if people remember, she was the lady at the dog park. She had her dog off the leash. This bird watcher told her, you know, I'm going to call your dog over here. You're not going to like what I'm about to do. She threatened to call 911. The thing that she said that I thought was pretty egregious was, well, I'm going to call the cops and tell them an African-American man is approaching me. That does seem kind of threatening. But the point I'm making is that there were other apparently complicated details that don't make this so cut and dry. Um, And I just don't think like in the age of everyone, especially on the left, talking constantly about nuance and the importance of nuance, like there's no nuance to be had whatsoever when it comes to accusing some people on social media of racism and it's really sad like this one usa today uh writer he said that the grandfather it's a blue check mark the grandfather should be put in jail because of what he said i mean that's crazy yeah and that goes and, and, and another part of this there's nuanced context and everything like we've been talking about also a sense of proportionality yeah so when you're talking about the situation with the dog walker um that yeah, there's there's more to the story. There's more context. All that's important, and of course, all of that is lost in the shuffle because in this day and age, everything is simplified, and um, and once you're cast as the villain, that's it. Con- context does not matter. In fact, we've been told that explicitly 
um, that context makes no difference. Well, in certain circumstances, like if you riot and burn down a building as part of a BLM protest, then we have to see all kinds of context and, and understand all kinds within of nuance, the greater, right. yeah, so on and so forth. But also, but even putting all that aside, there's also the matter of proportionality. I mean, let's just say that the woman in that, in the case you're talking about was totally in the wrong and she was as wrong as everyone assumed. Does that mean that, that she needs to be a, that the entire country needs to condemn her. This needs to be an international story. We need yeah. all of the media. She needs to be in the headlines. Everyone needs to talk about it. And they think took about her it. dog away. They took her dog away. Right. That's crazy. It's, it's like I, I, I would relate it to uh, another case kind of similar to that of the woman who the media calls Soho Karen. I don't even remember her real name, but she got into an altercation with um, uh, a black teenager in the in, in California in the lobby of a hotel, and she thought that the that the kid had taken her phone and she was and she was confronting him and she was totally crazy and and he didn't take the phone and she was out of bounds and she was completely in the wrong. Um, and this becomes, uh, it, you know, now the family is like suing the hotel over it and it becomes this whole thing and there's rallies and press conferences and everyone's talking about it. And it's just like, yeah, she's in the wrong, but this is a crazy eccentric woman. Why, yeah. why does everyone in the country need to know about this? Why, yeah. why is this now a, a, a matter of urgent national importance? And I think that's kind of lost in the shuffle also. And I mean, people's lives are ruined over this. There is another. I mean, this has happened a lot over the past year because unfortunately, these people are like rewarded and patted on the back for taking these kinds of videos. But there was this one woman that was accused of cutting this guy off and he followed her to her um, apartment, like filmed her um, license plate number filmed her address. It was, of course, it was a, a white woman who had apparently allegedly like cut him off or something. And so she's, she's effectively doxxed because of a normal negative interaction that people have on a daily basis. Like, why are we seeking this kind of, like you said, disproportionate retribution on people, especially along racial lines. I, I guess it's because of what you said, like it's rewarded on social media. People go viral. People will do anything for just, I don't know, that like dopamine hit of, you know, getting a lot of retweets. But I don't know. What do you think that we can do to rectify this kind of thing? If we're going to keep talking about it, which just brings these kinds of things more attention Maybe that's counterproductive. How do we push back on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrestle with that also, uh, especially when my complaint about some of these stories is that we shouldn't be talking about them. But now I'm talking about yeah. it by even saying we shouldn't talk right. about it. Uh, so what do you do about that? But the only other option, as far as we're concerned, is to say nothing and just leave this person to be torn apart by the pack of hyenas on social media. And I don't think that's the right thing. So we're kind of forced to to speak up um, as far as a solution. I, you know, I, I don't know that there is any quick switch we can flip yeah. on any of our cultural problems, but certainly has to begin at least with uh, decent, normal people being decent, normal people and speaking up when, when it, when it's, when it's, uh, when it's time to speak up. I think that has to be, that has to be the first step also. And we, and we also know one of the reasons why these kinds of stories get the attention that they do is because we've decided as a society that racism is not only systemic and it's everywhere, but it's also the worst thing, period. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse a person can be other than racist. Even like a child rapist or a murderer is not as bad as a racist. And we've decided that as, as, as well as deciding that it's everywhere. And so then all these issues become issues of national importance. And like you point out, these, these, these kind of normal, if contentious human interactions are seen now 
through this racial lens. And then that just confuses everything. And we see this at the, you know, there was a Michelle Obama uh, recently was, was, you know, I think on her podcast telling this story about that she still harbors a grudge over back when she was first lady and she kind of went undercover incognito to an ice cream shop and she was waiting in line and somebody cut in front of her and she's still traumatized by it to this day because she, she decided that it was racist. This was a white woman cut in front of a black woman and this was all racism and it's part of this whole tapestry of racism and so on and so forth. And, uh, and then you listen to that and you think, well, I've gotten cut in front of in line many times and I'm a white male. It's just, it's something that happens in the world. And, um, but when you have this framework is every single thing, even if it's the most normal thing in the world, is uh, seen through that lens and it becomes a big, bigger deal. Yeah, I think it's just this inflated self-importance that it, it it's not just from our talks about race and racism that have been so prevalent over the past, especially year and a half, but really just like the elevation of people's individual identities to the point where it's the most important thing about you and therefore everything that happens to you is because of your identity, especially the negative things that happen to you. So this person treated me like this because I'm a woman or because I'm gay or because I'm this skin color, whatever. And it's just, I think it's a consequence of narcissism that people assume that everyone's thinking about them when the reality is, is that no one's really thinking about us. Like we're thinking about ourselves, but very few people actually have other people out to get them simply because most people are thinking about themselves and not other people. I just think it has to do a lot with this kind of you are so special culture that we've created a lot longer than the past five years, I would say over the past few decades, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right, first of all, that, that and that's a really important thing for people to learn uh, because it makes them more well-adjusted and mature and less selfish people. But it's also kind of liberating, I think, to realize that, that very few people actually are thinking about you in the world or, or care that much about you. Most people, most everyone that's ever existed on earth and exists on earth now doesn't know about you, doesn't know you exist and never will. And the, and the people that do, most of them don't care that much and aren't thinking about you. Uh, the, the circle of people who really care and think about you is pretty small. And even them, even those people are mostly thinking about themselves because we are egocentric people by nature. Yeah. So that's an important thing to learn. But as you point out, um, it, it in this culture now, it's all about the identity. And I, I think it goes even deeper than that because it's not even that the most important thing is your own individual identity. It's actually the most important thing is how you feel about your identity. So it's your feeling. Of, it is the self's feeling about mm -hmm. itself. That is the most important thing. There's a book, a really great book called uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by yeah. Carl Truman. Yep, I've read it. And he talks about uh, a philosopher called Philip Reef who kind of separates the, the ages of man, the ages of humanity into these, there's a political man and there was, um, you know, religious man. And he says, we're now living in the era of psychological man. Mm. And the most important thing in the era of psychological man is your own psychological state and how you feel about yourself. And it, it is, and, it, and that means that it is everyone else's job to affirm your own feelings about yourself. Uh, and then from that starting point, we see a lot of the, the craziness all around us. Okay, I want to tell you guys about Fundrise. So it is so important right now with everything that's going on to have a diversified portfolio. And one of the things that your portfolio needs is private real estate. So studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades 
thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. And Fundrise allows you to do that. It helps you do that. It provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate uh, to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth or appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate really easy, as easy as investing in stocks or bonds or mutual funds. Their team of real estate professionals carefully vet and actively manage all of their real estate product uh, projects with their easy-to-use website. You can track your portfolio's performance and watches. Properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. So see for yourself how over 150 thousand investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. Just takes a few minutes to get started. Super easy and accessible. Fundrise.com slash relatable. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash relatable. Fundrise.com slash relatable. I think in this age of in this age of self-love, which is ironic and self-help and self-empowerment and self, 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 we're told that that is the most important thing for you to achieve. If you love yourself, then all of these good things will finally manifest. But at the same time, we've seen such a rise in anxiety, such a rise in depression, such a rise in all these mental health issues. So like, how can it be that if we're told that the real problem in the world is that people don't love themselves enough, and if we all just loved ourselves more then we would, I don't know, live out John Lennon's uh, imagine or something like that. But that's obviously not the case. Like we're told to focus on ourselves more and we're more miserable. Like we're more divided. We're more offended. We're more sensitive. We're more fearful than we've ever been. I think social media and technology also play a role in that. Like when are people going to realize that, okay, maybe the solutions that we're putting on people are actually making it worse. And if we just went back, not to self-loathing, but to a state of kind of self-forgetfulness and a willingness towards self-sacrifice and inconvenience, all of these things that we're told like we shouldn't embrace nowadays, maybe, maybe society would be a little bit better and even more cohesive. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And part of the problem here is not only there, there's the intense focus on self-love, which is a huge part, part, part of the, the, the problem. And I agree with you that um, it's, it's not that we're supposed to hate ourselves. That's not good either. But yeah. more just stop thinking about yourself so, so much. much. Maybe try to think about something else. <laughs> find some, like find a, a hobby. I mean, find something else to think about. Read a book that has nothing to do with any of this. Just, just find, find other things to put your focus around. But then the, also, the, the, other, the other part of this issue is that we see love as nothing but an emotion. And so, um, so if we're focused on self-love, what does that mean? It means that we're just sitting around on our couches trying to make ourselves feel a certain way about ourselves. And it's just this, it's, you just are circling the drain and, uh, and nothing ever comes from it. If you start to see that love is an act, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas said to love is to will the good of the other. Then, yeah, in, in that sense, it makes sense to, to love yourself and that you want what is good, what is actually good for you, which right. may not be always what you want. So you're trying to live a, a healthy and well-ordered life. Um, and but also this love is inherently an outward facing thing. It projects out. And so you're trying to will the good of everybody around you, people, the people closest to you. Mm -hmm. And if you just make that your goal, just you, you try to live a good life and help people around you to live a good life and to bring goodness into your life and into your orbit. Um, I think that's uh, 
that's the key rather than sitting around worrying about your feelings. Yeah. I think the problem is the redefinition of love that we have allowed like kind of postmodern progressives to to do, to take on. Um, and that is love, like you said, that people think it's just a feeling, but they also say it's complete and total affirmation. So whatever someone says that they want, uh, want or whatever they want to do, um, we're just supposed to affirm it. And that's what it means to be loving. That's what it means to love your neighbor. But if love actually means, as you said, to want the best for other people, then that's going to mean, for example, that I am not going to affirm someone's delusion um, or, you know, especially a young person's delusion about being the opposite gender. That's not wanting what's best for them. Or if you look at like the normalization of obesity as something that is healthy, it's not loving for me to affirm that. I can be kind about it. I can be gentle and generous about it. But affirming those kinds of delusions is actually not loving at all if you see loving as something that is to really help someone, not just to make them feel good about themselves all the time. I think that's actually enabling, not love. Yeah, I, I think that this is the great grotesque sort of morbid irony that we're told the loving thing is to abandon someone in a situation where they're clearly miserable and and leaving leading a really horrible life. I mean, it's like it, it's like they're telling us you, you see someone on a, a deserted island starving to death and dying of thirst. Well, just, just this is where they want to be. Obviously, leave them there. They seem, they seem to be having a good time. They're laying on the beach, seem to be <laughs> relaxing. No, they're, they're dying there. And so the best thing you can do is rescue them from it. And it's the same way kind of psychologically. A lot of people, you bring up the gender example, the, the number one prime example, there are other ones related to it, like um, body positivity and you know, someone who's morbidly obese, we have to affirm them in that. Uh, but this, there's no happiness in that. There's no happiness in self-destruction. There's no happiness in the rejection of your own true nature. And that's why we're, we're, we're you know, there, there are many things when it comes to the transgender issue, many facts we're supposed to simply not bring up, starting with basic facts about human biology. Another one is the insanely high suicide rate. We're talking yeah. 40% for suicide attempts in the transgender community. And that does not go down very much after the gender affirming quote unquote procedures, yeah. as they call it now. Even in the most progressive countries, by the way, people say, oh, well, it has to do with America not accepting these people or whatever. But even in Sweden, some of the most accepting families and communities, the most tolerant and progressive countries, we still see a suicide rate among transgender people that is much higher than the general population. Yeah. And even if even if that weren't the case, I mean, even in this country, we are very affirming of transgenderism. So that 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 uh, objection doesn't make any sense. But even if we weren't, it's still 40 percent. That's a cataclysmic, catastrophic, yeah. unthinkable rate of suicide attempt. Something is going on here. And it is not just that people are bullied because, look, you can you can find many examples through history of groups of people who have been actually persecuted in horrific, horrendous ways. We can start with slaves here in the United States, you know, Jews in the Holocaust. Um, we, we think of persecution that is certainly far beyond anything that a transgender person in modern America in 2021 will ever experience. And yet you do not find 40% suicide rates or anything close to that. In fact, sometimes you find the opposite. You find that um, groups of people who are really persecuted, the, the suicide rates can sometimes go down because they're sort of rallying around each other and um, they've got this outward villain that they're struggling against, and they can have that effect. But 
whether it does or not, you certainly don't find 40% suicide rates. Uh, this is something new and unique. Yeah. And it requires an explanation that goes beyond the, the normal things that we hear from the culture. And we're not we're not loving this group of people by not being willing to dig into those things. I'm sure you saw the 60 minute special that interviewed several detransitioners, young people, some of them minors when they transition who got, you know, life altering surgery because their parents, their psychologists, their doctors didn't give them any pushback when they said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of troubled and I want to become a different gender. I want to get a double mastectomy or whatever. So they did these things only to realize that, okay, I had other mental health and environmental issues that were going on then that no one even bothered to ask them about. So was it, the, was it really the loving thing to do to allow that 15-year-old girl without parental consent to get a double mastectomy because she said she was a boy? That actually seems like, that seems like hate to me. That's, that's the worst. In fact, it's even worse than hate because as they say, you know, the indifference is far worse than hate. And I would, I would agree with that. I think it's, it's so it is indifference. It's, I, I don't really care about your long-term well-being. That's what a lot of these therapists and these, you know, these surgeons who do these procedures. Um, I don't know. The girl comes in and wants a d- double mastectomy. Does the surgeon hate that girl personally? Probably not. The surgeon yeah. just doesn't really care about that girl's well-being and would rather take the money and run. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's something, it's something even, yeah, it's something even worse than hate that we're doing. And meanwhile, you talk about not even asking them basic questions. And that's true. They're really basic questions that people, especially kids struggling with these gender confusions are not asked. Here's one, and I'm always harping on this for a reason. But um, when you hear, let's say a boy says, oh, I I think I'm a girl or I'm a girl or I wanna be a girl. Um, Well, what do you mean by that? What is a girl to you? What what do you mean when you say Mm. that? What exactly do you want to be or what is it what what do you think you are? Tell me a little bit about this word girl that you're using. Yeah. That that question, it blows my mind that no one ever thinks to ask that. Because if you did, and you were at, to ask a, a young boy who says, I'm a girl, if you were to ask him that, either he would have no answer at all, because for him, he, he's just babbling nonsensically, as kids do. Or if he has any kind of coherent answer, he's going to say something like, um, I like the color pink. I like my sister's dollhouse. It's fun. I like to play with it. Um, I like to play with the little toy kitchen set. You know, he, that, he's going to say stuff like that. There are things that he associates with girlhood that he enjoys and thinks are fun. That's it. And so your response is, oh, well, go ahead and go ahead and play with the dollhouse. That's right. fine. But you're a boy. You're still a boy. But you can go ahead and play with the kitchen set. You can play with the dollhouse. Um, that, that's, it, it really is as simple as that oftentimes, I think. Yeah. And there, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a whole industry kind of pushing this kind of confusion on kids, which is so contradictory, simultaneously saying, you know, boys can wear dresses, do anything they want to do. But if a boy wants to wear a dress, that means he's actually a girl. And there was, you know, people were getting upset, understandably, about, I don't know, one of the Muppets who is a boy, like calling himself a princess and putting on a dress. And of course, people on the left were saying, why are conservatives mad about this? Boys can wear dresses. And I know. No, they call him princess and they call him they. They won't even use he pronouns. So obviously it's a way to try to confuse kids about gender, but also pushing really weird gender stereotypes. If your son comes up to you and says, hey, like I had fun playing dress up with my sister today, that doesn't, you don't say, as you said, okay, well, that probably means you're a girl. Like, what do you want your new... What do you want your new name to be? I mean, it's completely nonsensical. And the fact that they're even professing 
Christians that go along with this madness. I mean, it's really, really sad. And that that's the one of the many, there are so many contradictions when it comes to this subject, it's hard to even sift through all of them. That's one of the biggest ones that you just touched on that for so many years, for decades, um, the goal of the left and of feminists in particular has been to break down gender constructs, what they consider artificial gender constructs, uh, to break down traditional notions of masculinity and femininity. And, and wh- what I always understood that to mean and what it did mean originally was that, hey, if you're a girl, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to conform to any expectations. Or if you're a boy, same thing. But now they say, oh, if you're a boy who wants to wear a dress, that means you're a girl. So before it was, if oh, boys should be able to wear dresses, now it's now we're back to boys can't wear dresses because if they do, that actually means they're a girl. Yeah. So they've completely, and I, I know some feminists have realized this, and that's where you get the so-called TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, even though it's, there's nothing radical really about their position at all. They just, they're just sticking with what feminists have always said, You're right. whereas all the other ones have uh, abandoned, abandoned ship. Abandoned ship, exactly. All right, one more sponsor for today. Today, I've got a new sponsor for you guys. So you might know that I've got Women's Book Club with Ali Stuckey. A lot of you guys have joined that on Facebook. We go through a lot of amazing books every year. But uh, you really can't get enough of, you know, like-minded conversation about really important literature and really important uh, issues. And Red Pill Book Club is a way for you to be able to do that. You guys know we are in... Um, a moral ideological battle right now. It's so important to feel equipped. It's so important to surround yourself by people who think and in, in the think the same way you do, who value the same things that you do, so that you can also, um, you know, uh, talk to people that you disagree with, but you have the information and uh, you have the tools that you need to be able to do that in a persuasive and effective way. So in Red Pill Book Club, you receive a book to your doorstep every month that addresses the challenges we face. Um, as conservatives, as, as Christians in this culture, uh, you connect with like-minded uh, moms specifically through bi-monthly discussion calls. You can equip yourself and your family with the tools to fight back in whatever way you can. They've read uh, lots of really good books like Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible damage. And so this is just a really great way. Uh, It's a really great way for you to uh, be connected to other mothers who are going through the same things, facing the same challenges that you are. Go to redpillbook.club slash Allie. So that's redpillbook.club slash Allie to join the book club to receive 25% off your first month. You can stop feeling overwhelmed by the growing influence that is trying to negatively affect your family and your kids. Um, that is redpillbook.club slash Allie for 25% off your first month. Redpillbook.club slash Allie. Um, speaking of the subject, I don't know if you saw the latest in the James Younger case, the little now eight-year-old boy who has been you know, going through a custody battle between his Mom and dad, the mom has insisted he's, you know, he's a twin and uh, the mom has insisted that this little boy thinks that he's a girl, dresses him up like a girl, calls him Luna. And I'm just saying this for the people listening. I know you know this. Um, And the dad is like, no, you know, he's a boy. He wants to dress like a boy. And I think the dad even gives him the option of dressing like a girl when he's 
with him, but has tried really hard to get full custody while the judge granted full custody now to the mom um, who has been trying very hard to do hormone therapy and all that kind of stuff on this um, eight-year-old boy in Texas for a really long time. And man, if this is not an instance of true injustice, I don't know what is. What's your reaction to all that? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think you're right that the, the father is is actually more tolerant of this stuff than, than even than I would be. Because if my, if my son said he wants to dress as a girl, I'm just going to say, no, you're not doing that. Sorry, not happening. Um, so this is, but this is a, a father who is, and I, I don't know anything else about him. I don't know him personally. Yeah. I don't know anything else about the mother. I don't know her personally. I don't need to, because all I know is that the father recognizes that his son is a boy and should live as a boy and shouldn't have this madness foist on him and imposed on him. And the mother wants to, wants to turn her, her son into a girl, turn her son into a daughter. And that's all we need to know to know that that child cannot, should not be with that mother. And in a sane society, this would be an easy case. This wouldn't be something that goes through the courts for years and years and then ends up how it does now. Um, this would be really simple. Like during the divorce, the custody uh, hearing, all the father would need to say is, hey, judge, uh, my ex-wife is trying to turn my son into a girl and telling him he's a girl. And the judge would say, okay, well, he's going over with you then. Yeah. Um, that's a sane society, but we don't live in that kind of society. And there, like, there, there, there are a lot of lessons we can learn from this. Um, it's a terrible case. I think one thing, though, is for, for um, younger people, single people who are not married yet, um, this is kind of a, this is kind of a, a, a red flag thing. And, uh, and so when you're, especially, you know, as a man, you're maybe dating a, a, a woman and you think it's getting serious, I would ask them about something like this. I would, I would say to them, hmm. Hey, b- by the way, do, do you think that there's any chance that a young boy could ever transition into a girl or should ever be trans- transitioned into a girl? And if you hear anything other than hell, no run the other way yeah. um, because this is the nightmare scenario that you have to worry about now where your spouse um, decides to impose this on your kid. And when it happens, you know, the entire system will be on their side. This isn't, this is not a warning against getting married. I'm all about marriage and kids. I'm just saying, this is one of those things you should probably be screening for uh, in the dating process. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, you hope that someone who shares the same basic worldview and theological views as you would agree with you on this subject. But unfortunately, you might not know that. I've never even thought about that. That's, hey, that's probably a good a good question to ask someone or a good thing to know before you get married. So if you're engaged or if you're dating, probably just good to know that because you never know people's perspectives on that. And that would change your life and your kids' lives forever. That's crazy. Um one thing that you, I saw you talking about and that I talked about too on Instagram was Simone Biles. I think you were talking about her saying that she's pro-choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to hear you talk about that, but there's something that we disagree on when it comes to Simone Biles that I want to talk about first, since I know we agree on the abortion thing. Um, you're very harsh against Simone Biles for saying that she is not going to compete due to mental health. Can you um, explain again your, your position on that? Well, first of all, I would never, I'm never harsh on anyone. So I don't know why you would accuse me of that. That's true. That's true. You're very um, sweet. Thank you. I, I'm very gentle, I think. Yeah, I, I think, um, listen, if, first of all, if she had just not shown up at the Olympics and said, I don't want to do it, no problem. Uh, if she had shown up at the Olympics and then quit in the middle, as she did, 
and apologized after and said, hey, you know, I, I just I was getting in my own head and I couldn't do it. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have quit, but I did. Um, and I appreciate my team for, for, for picking up the slack. They shouldn't have had to, but they did. And then if, the re- and if everybody else had kind of responded to that in a normal way by sort of shaking our head and saying, oh, that's really too bad, you know, but, and, and that would be it. We'd move on. I probably never would have even talked about the issue yeah. because I don't care about the Olympics or gymnastics that much. But it's when what we do in our culture now, when we turn vice into virtue and we take this moment of cowardice, which is what it was, and now I'm being told that I have to celebrate it, that it's actually courageous, not, not, to, not to be tolerant of it, not to be empathetic towards her, but to celebrate it as an act of courage, um, that is where I draw the line and say, I, I, I can't do that. And when Ms. And Simone Biles was leaning into that and embracing her role now as a courageous mental health advocate, never apologized to her team for putting them on the spot like that in, in such a way. And not to mention depriving someone else of, a, of that spot that, that she ended up bailing out of. Um, you know, yeah. that, that for me is where, was where I had to, to, to draw the line. and. Uh, so that's, that's where I stood on that. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I really went back and forth on it because on the one hand, I, I felt the same things that you did in bailing on your team. That seemed like a big deal to me that you could be more contrite about. At least she could have said, you know, it's crazy. She said that she had the twisties, which I'm not a gymnast, so I don't know really what that is. But apparently, you know, you lose your spot in the air and you don't really know how to land. That does sound pretty terrifying. I don't know what that's like. But... um she didn't really give that explanation publicly, which made it weird. She basically just said, sometimes you're not having fun. I was like, okay, well, that seems like kind of an odd reason to bail on your team. But at the same time, what I kept telling myself was, all right, but I know that she's not a weak person and she's never exemplified, at least in her professional career, any kind of selfishness and self and narcissism that we know of anyway. Um, she seems like she is in general, a team player. And we know that she's not mentally weak. Like we know that she's not a weak person because she wouldn't have gotten to where she is if that were the case. And so if someone who has been a champion for as long as she has says that she's having a hard time, that she doesn't think that she can compete, then I do believe in maybe giving her the benefit of the doubt that, all right, like she just doesn't have a history of being weak and of being selfish. And so maybe it really is serious like maybe she really did have a serious problem although i do see your point that she didn't seem very like humble and sad about it yeah i I think your interpretation is 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 charitable i I mean i respect being charitable even if i even if i rarely am but in in this case i just think because of how there's how the media reacted to it which i think necessitated a response yeah from people like us and um and then also simone bile she did she just didn't approach it from 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 that angle, and I would also say, yeah, she's obviously a tough competitor most of the time. She's an extremely talented gymnast, way better than I am, which is not hard to do. Um, she has handled a lot of pressure clearly, but I, I would also say, when when you've been at the top of your game and you've been really really good for a long time, and you're always the best, and uh, and all of that, that that's there's pressure that comes with that, of course. Um, and there's a certain amount of courage that's required to kind of keep at it. But when you start to, to fail, you know, and, and when you're not, and, and, and when you're really struggling and when you're not at the top, at the top anymore, because she was, let's, let's not forget, she was struggling in these Olympics by, by her own standard that calls on like a different kind of courage to know that, okay, I could actually go out there and I could maybe fail doing this. I've never failed before at this, but I might fail now. Um, and to go and do it anyway, that calls on a different kind of courage. 
And I think this is the first time in her recent athletic career well, where that kind of courage was required, where there was actually a chance that she might fail. And, um, and she wasn't willing to do that. She wasn't, she wasn't willing to potentially fail in front of the entire world. And, and she pulled out. Yeah. Um, that's, that's how I kind of read it. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's the case. I guess I have a hard time criticizing people in that position because I've never been in that. I've never been in that position and I could never do, even if I was an athlete like that, I could probably never do what she does and she's been super successful. So I did, I did kind of give her the BOD, but then I was looking through her Instagram stories last night and I saw that someone asked her about abortion and I was like, okay, maybe she's not mentally where I thought that she was because I mean, she gave crazy explanations of why she is pro-choice, which is, um, adoption is expensive, which is funny. I can get into that, but, um, which is true, but you don't pay to put your child up for adoption. Um, the foster care system is broken, which is true. She was a product of foster care. And basically she just said your body, your choice. You had something to say about that. So I want to hear your take on it before I talk more about it. Yeah, well, this is coming there. There's something all the more disturbing and troubling about it coming from someone who, as she says, uh, was a product of the, of the foster care system and thrived and succeeded, much to her credit, um, in spite of beginning life with with those kinds of struggles. Yet she's turning around now and saying it, it might be better that a, that a child not exist at all, be killed, than go through what she did, knowing that it's perfectly possible to experience that and to still thrive and live a, a happy life as she is living. You know, that to me is, uh, it, it kind of goes back to, um, a, a disregard and indifference for other people's lives that I, I think shows a certain selfishness that was also on display at the Olympics, I think. So this can, in some ways, kind of, I felt like confirmed my priors a little bit about her, my instincts on on this kind of selfishness that's on display here. And as you point out, the, the arguments also, we should note, are are just not true. First of all, uh, it the expense with adoption is not when you're putting the kid up for adoption. But But even more importantly, Yes, there are a lot of kids in the foster care system, and it's a very sad and terrible thing. And there are kids that are in that system for years and, 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 and are, have a hard time finding a family that will take them. It's a very sad and terrible thing. But that is not the case for babies. I mean, there is a, there is a, a line miles long of couples that are waiting to adopt babies. The reason why the older kids end up there for so long is that most couples want babies because they feel like they can really you know, bond with the child if they get the child at a, at a young age. So if you... If there's a quote unquote unwanted pregnancy and a, and a woman is deciding between abortion and adoption and she chooses life and she chooses adoption and, and puts the child up for adoption as soon as the child is born, that child will be adopted. Yeah. Maybe not like tomorrow, but there will be a family adopting that child. Um, right. So the idea that they're just going to linger from infancy. They don't go, yeah, they don't go right into the foster care system. Like you said, I mean, it's very likely that you will be able to find a couple who will pay for all of your medical expenses, by the way, if you are someone who is going to give your infant up for adoption, I'm not saying that that is true in every case, but there are so many willing parents who want to adopt that they will give an arm and a leg just to make sure that you are comfortable throughout your pregnancy. And so I just, I don't even think that she had thought through her position on that. And like you said, like she's a product of, of foster care and she makes a huge contribution to the world. Like, why doesn't she think that of of other babies that are born to drug abusing mothers as she was. Yeah, it shows a, a vision of life that is really, really dark. Uh, and, and she's not the only one. I mean, this, the, the, this is the pro-abortion 
vision of the world where there are some lives that it, it, there's no point in even having those lives. There's, there's no point in existing, especially if you're going to potentially experience suffering and deprivation early on. And I don't minimize that at all, by the way. I mean, there are kids, if you, it, let's, let's, let's confront and acknowledge the reality that um, babies who are quote unquote unwanted pregnancies, as much as I hate the term, but using their term, unwanted pregnancies, many of those babies, if they're born, there's a good chance that a certain portion of them will, will suffer in their lives. They'll have very yeah. difficult lives early on, especially, and they might suffer tremendously. And that's a terrible thing. But is it, is it for us to say that it's just better off if they died, that there's nothing at the, at the, at the other, that there's no light at the other end of that tunnel. There's nothing greater and better out there for them. Yeah. Um, what a, what a way to look at the world. And that's not how I look at it. And even if you do look at the world that way, it's not for you to decide that for someone else. Right. And you can always try to apply the arguments that they have about babies in the womb to people outside the womb. Like if you think that a life in foster care and a life that, um, you know, is filled with abuse is bad, which obviously I do, I think is is terrible. Um, and you think that that's a justification for killing someone in the womb, then why don't you also think that's a justification for killing someone outside the womb? Like, what's it to you? What's your standard? Why is it only that defenseless babies are okay being killed because they might have a hard life, but not babies outside of the womb uh, to be killed because they have a hard life? So, but unfortunately, I just think that most pro-choicers, and this is what I found, I'm sure you have too, have never thought about it. They've never really thought about their position beyond my body, my choice, and this is what, you know, gets me a pat on the back. Yeah, they I, they really haven't. And it's, uh, it's like many other viewpoints. We go back to the gender thing. It's, you, you can't really hold that position and think about it very long or very deeply and still have that same position at the end of that process of thinking because you run into so many problems and some really fundamental ones with abortion, like, Okay, you think it's okay to kill babies in the womb, uh, which means that you don't think babies in the womb have any moral rights, which I assume means that you, you don't think they have any moral worth, any real worth, uh, which is why they can be killed and discarded and thrown into a dumpster out back. Um, so if that means that they don't have any worth, then that means that human worth is not inherent. There's yeah. nothing inherent in right. us that, that, that gives us that worth. And so then um, that means that the rest of us don't have inherent worth. Worth is, is I guess, earned by degree and by how much you contribute to society. But as you point out, well, then why don't we, you know, th that that logic can be applied and has been applied in other societies exactly outside of the womb. Um, I don't see how you, you get around that. And also, by the way, if we don't have inherent worth, then what is all this stuff about human rights? Like, what do you even mean by that? What, what, what are our rights exactly? Where do those come from? Yeah. Who cares about your rights well, if, you, I, if you're not even a, a being of, that possesses inherent worth? So these are all questions that I think they just don't really think about much. And I think, well, I think that's exactly why they're okay with giving up rights for, you know, temporary comfort and safety, because they do think that rights are something that the government came up with and gives people based on, you know, a bunch of arbitrary standards. And I would say that's, that's why a conservative can't be pro-choice because of the reasons that you just listed. I know libertarians can, you know, they say whatever they want to say about, you know, bodily autonomy and all that stuff, but... Uh, conservatism is based on this idea that we have inherent rights from a power that is bigger than the government and therefore they can't be arbitrarily taken away by the government. And that is where we get this understanding um, of human rights. And if it doesn't start at conception, then any time after that, it's just totally arbitrary. And if you give into that argument, 
then like you said, you don't even believe in an inherent right. And why are you a conservative? Why do you believe in the Constitution? It's just completely incongruent to me. Yeah, I wish people would do this inventory. Um, and for those of us who think at all, it's sort of, it's kind of mind boggling to think that there are others who haven't uh, asked themselves some of these really basic questions, but apparently they haven't. And so here's a, you know, here's one question I think everyone should ask themselves if they haven't. It's, uh, it's do I believe that, um, that life has any real objective value? Do I actually believe that? And then once you get the answer to that question, because you're going to be a yes or no on that. And if it's anything other than yes, then it's a no. Um, and that's going to set you, you know, th th those, are, those are two, th that's, that's a path parting in the woods there. And that's going to, and your answer on that was going to take you in, in one direction or another. And um, when you start following that path, you know, you, you may be surprised about some of the answers you come up with, depending on what your first answer is. Um, because if your answer to that is no, then, you know, there, there may be a way to cobble together some kind of nihilistic philosophy based on that, but you're going to have to give up a lot of the positions that you currently hold because those things aren't going to matter anymore because life doesn't matter. So I think everyone should kind of do that. And, but if you answer yes, and I think most people instinctively would answer yes, then, you know, you start following that along and right. you might be also surprised by uh, some of the positions you end up forming. Yep. Yep. I think once people realize that any of their defenses that they have for abortion um, could be logically then applied to people outside the womb and no one would say, oh, yeah, I believe that we should, you know, kill people in foster, foster care or homeless people or people who have hard lives. Um, and then if you just, you know, trace that back and ask yourself, well, then why do I believe that it's okay for someone with a potentially hard life just because they're defenseless, just because they're in the womb? That seems like a very arbitrary standard for life and death. Um, last thing I want to talk to you about, very important, and this is something that you talk about a lot. I don't know, maybe it's your biggest issue. Maybe this is like your hill that you will die on, and that is cyclists who decide that they are going to, um, that they are going to bicycle, I don't know, two, three, four people abreast. You have very, very big opinions on that. Can you explain them to us? Yeah, it's one of the many hills that I will die on, but it's certainly an important <laughs> one, uh, and I think a very important issue. Uh, look, I, here, I, I have a very basic point of view on this when it comes to cyclists. The road is not a place for recreation, okay? <laughs> if you want recreation, if you want to exercise or anything, we got gyms for that, you got bike paths in the woods, we got sidewalks, we got, we got tracks, we got, we got so many things for you, treadmills. I mean, the good news is that there are so many places you can go <laughs> for, rec for recreational activity and for exercise. Um, I'm not going to go out to the road and pop down on the ground and start busting out some push-ups. If I want to do that, I'm going to go inside to do that because the road is not for that. It's not for recreation. It's not for exercise. The road is for getting from point A to point B, and it is made literally for cars. That's why we pave it. That's why we, it's like <laughs> literally we make the roads for cars to be on yeah. and um, not for you on your toy. And a bicycle for most people is is really just a toy that's fine we, we all again all we all have recreation it's just not a place for it so get the hell off the road that's it well they can't they can't ride on sidewalks though because sidewalks are for walking and also like it's annoying of with as a, a mom with two kids i can't like just get off the sidewalk when there's a bike coming my way on the sidewalk it really bothers me when there are cyclists on the sidewalk too because what am i supposed to do um and so i mean what's the solution they kind of have to go in the road sometimes don't they uh i think the solution in those in those scenarios is just don't i i guess you're gonna have to <sighs> I guess you, you you just can't bike at all. I'm sorry. Like find something else to do with your time. 
there are pl- there's you, you might have to actually go, you might have to put your bike in an actual vehicle like a civilized person and drive to some place where that is specifically set up for you on your bike. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I am saying get off the road, but I also think get off the sidewalk. So I realize that I'm kind of limiting <laughs> your options. Um, I guess the main point is you're just you're like imposing yourself on the rest of us and no one else wants you around. And yeah. um, that should also make you, you know, I would feel self-conscious being like b- biking on the road, knowing that I got this whole line of cars behind me. <laughs> right, that I hate thought me. about that. I've thought about and, that. And like, how does that not bother you to, to, to even know that? <laughs> and I think it's because all cyclists are sociopaths and, um, and are psychotics. That's my I think, final you know, analysis. that is um, one of your classic charitable assessments. And I think that's um, how we have to end. So thank you so much for giving us your uh, takes on so many things today. I really appreciate it. I know everyone else does too. So thank you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. 